Welcome back to You're Not Crazy, Gospel Sanity for Young Pastors. I'm Ray Ortland. This is coming to you from the Gospel Coalition, and I am overjoyed to be with my friend, Sam Alberry. Hey, Ray. Good to see you. And I have a question for Sam. Now, um, who is the most famous person you've ever run into by some serendipitous chance? Yeah, there, there wouldn't be many, but I, I worked for a while in a, an old coffee shop back in the UK, and... This, this person may not be famous to many of our listeners, but she was famous to me because I was a student of music at the time. Uh, Kirita Kanawa. Oh, my goodness. No way. Walked into the coffee shop uh, and ordered a cappuccino. So I made Kirita Kanawa a cappuccino and did very discreetly ask for her autograph and told her I was studying music at high school. And, uh, you know, this was in the early 90s. She was very well known because she had done the anthem for some, I think it was a Rugby World Cup or something like that. But um, just an amazing, amazing lady. She was very friendly. I loved her voice. I remember her singing at Charles and Diana's wedding in 1981. She sang something from George Frederick Handel. Wow. It was, it just sparkled. It was amazing. I ran into Sam Albury one time. World-class <laughs> apologist. That does not pre- count. <laughs> preacher. And now my friend. Yeah. Yeah. That does not count. Well, it counts with me. <laughs> All right, so uh, we're, we're now talking about how the young pastor listening to this, we wish we could be together with that guy right now face-to-face mm. and just talk at length about whatever matters to him. We're trying to anticipate what's interesting to him, what's important to him, what matters, the questions, the concerns, the reservations. And we're making the case in this podcast that gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. And we, we believe that a whole generation of pastors intuitively understand what that means and how much that matters. Uh, and, and this whole generation of pastors want to be utterly faithful to Christ in their message that they proclaim, the content they proclaim, and also in the quality, the human beauty that they nurture in their churches. Um, so gospel doctrine and gospel culture together. And what we began to say in the last episode, we want to catch up on that, and, and I want to come back to it, because this is something that for so many years I simply didn't, didn't understand, is that the basic contours, the basic shape of authentic Christian ministry, there are three basic priorities in this order. Jesus, community, mission. Jesus first, obviously. Who's going to argue that he should be second? So Jesus, in his grace and glory, the finished work of Christ on the cross, the endless power of the Holy Spirit, union with Christ, his all-sufficiency, and so forth. He is the one to whom we take everything, and we walk away with more than we could have asked or imagined. So Jesus comes first. But secondly, it's not Jesus' mission, serving the world, getting the gospel out, sending missionaries, evangelizing, offering apologetics, and so forth serving the community, making the world a better place for the glory of Jesus. All those things we must do. We're glad to do those. We feel privileged to do those things. We wouldn't want to live for anything else. But the task of mission is not our next priority after Jesus. It's the radiance and the beauty and the quality of our community that is our next priority. Because it is the community as the community that gives traction 
to all true mission. So our priorities as pastors, it's not Jesus' mission, then we'll get around to community as we're able, but it's Jesus' community and then mission. I did not see this for so many years. For example, I'm looking right now <laughs> at the membership directory, the photo directory from a church I pastored. It was a great privilege to serve them uh, many years ago. And I open up to page one. And what I'm looking at right now, the first thing that meets my eye as I open up page one of this church membership directory is the, the words, our ministry emphases. What was I thinking? And we have the mission of the church stated there and subcategories, the worship of God, the ministry of the word, the discipleship of the world. There is, well, two things bother me about that now. It seemed obvious, and there's nothing actually wrong with this, Sam, but I'm noticing two things that bother me now. One, Jesus comes first, excuse me, before ministry emphases. The first page in our church directory should have been our Savior, not our ministry emphases. Yeah, who, who was the head of the church? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> oh, anybody at home, McFly? <laughs> <laughs> so... Here's the other thing that bothers me about that page that I supervised. There is not one single reference to our being a community together, a family together, brothers and sisters in Christ, sharing mutual love, esteem, honesty, honor, support, and so forth. So actually, this paradigm, this unself-critical, unself-aware paradigm of Christianity, on page one, of the church directory I was responsible for. This is actually mission, Jesus, maybe community. At the time, I didn't see what the problem was. I think one of the interesting things about that is if we, if we try and skip over the community part and go straight into mission, what we don't realize is that we're going to have much less effective mission because part of the way God has designed his gospel to flourish is, is, as we were looking at last week, it's the relational beauty that, that does so much to commend and to confirm the actual message that we preach. And if we just rush into simply mission as a bare task thing on its own, we won't have the same traction. So what you and I are saying is let's, let's be self-aware as to what we're actually leaning into, what we're prioritizing. And uh, who, we, we all want people to be evangelized, converted, and join the church and grow, right? So who in our city would be, in, in his right mind, would want to join this church? Why should anybody join? Why would any legitimately self-interested, self-motivated human being choose cheerfully to come join this church? in Christ. Why? We owe the community. We must respect them enough to give them a good answer to that question. And if the only answer is Jesus, who will forgive your sins and so forth, that's not a bad answer, but it's actually not the total answer Jesus mm. himself gives. He did not come to save and redeem and gather in isolated individuals into this band of isolated individuals like pennies in a jar. 
He came to gather in his elect from all the nations to form a body which is joined together and lives and dies together. So there is a quality of community that preaching alone cannot create, but preaching with pastoral nurturing can create by God's grace for his glory. And that people in the city looking, your city, my city, looking at that community, something will resonate and they will say, uh, my life would get better if I were in among those people. Well, Paul says in Ephesians 3 that it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It is that that new society that God has created, that new type of reality God has created. That uh, <laughs> that that's how God blows a raspberry to the devil. Do you use that phrase here? No, I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> so blowing a raspberry is oh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll cut that bit out. No, I like that. That's really good, Sam Mulberry. You're, you're being just sort of charmingly British, and I love that expression. <laughs> I'm going to start using that. Okay, well, there we go. Let's, yeah, let's, let's start a campaign. Yeah. If, if, the God, if God really wants to stick it to the devil, he just has to point to his church because there's a reality there that, that embodies and proves the beauty and the supremacy of Christ and the, the triumph of Christ. Now, when you're saying that, something inside me lights up. An awareness lights up that, well, one, I am not willing to pray and suffer and labor and give my life simply to maintaining an ecclesiastical institution that is not beautiful. But I am willing to labor and suffer and pray and give my life to the creation of a beauty that can astonish this generation and the next. I'll give my life to that. So what you're talking about Sign me up. And that's gospel culture. Well, if, if part of this then is, is not being so task-oriented that we become relationally unaware, how can the pastor himself cultivate that more relationally-minded kind of approach to things? It, it's just got to start with, with me as a pastor, with you, Sam. Every young pastor listening right now, guys, we have got to stick our necks out and put our hearts out there and be vulnerable and show our hearts and give our hearts away to people. For example, Paul said in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verse 8, that these people had become very precious to him. He said, so being very affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And Sam, that extravagant language he uses there, affectionately desirous, very dear, that wasn't flattery, it wasn't exaggeration. He felt that way. And this man was seriously theological. He was, he was the best theologian we've had in the last 2,000 years. And this richly theological, principled, conscientious, no-nonsense, non-compromising man of God was brimming with, overflowing with human emotion with people that 
pushed him toward them and he poured his life out for them, not because it was a professional requirement, but because he couldn't help himself. The love of Christ had come into his heart through the gospel. It's interesting, not only does he feel that way, but he actually wants them to know that he feels that way. He doesn't just have that affection and, and know it himself. He, he knows they need to hear that. And it's a vulnerable thing, isn't it, to say, to say something like that about anyone because, you're, you, as you said, you, you're putting your heart out there in a way that the other person may not agree with you or may not receive it in that way or may not feel the same way. There is a risk to that, but it, it's, a, it's evidently a, a risk Paul felt was necessary as part of his being a godly, authentic pastor. It's a Christ-like risk. Yeah. Our Lord put himself out for us. Now, in every sociological environment, there, is a, there are, are acceptable and authentic ways of communicating this emotion, and there are awkward, counterproductive ways. So we've got to, be, we've got to know where we are sociologically mm-hmm. and use the, the words, expressions, the looks, and, and the gestures, and everything that is, a, that is suitable that is acceptable to people, that will resonate, that will work. Okay, fine. But we still have to stick our necks up. Yeah, the, the church should not be in any doubt as to how you feel about them. That shouldn't be a mystery. Oh, and why not lean over the pulpit frequently, look the people in the eye, and tell them, I love you. And here's why. Here's another reason why. And tell them. For when, when Paul, uh, again, coming back, the language of Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapters 1 and 2, it, it's great to read those two chapters, 1 Thess 1 and 2, and circle the emotional words, all the words he uses to describe how he felt about those people. This was just one of the churches. Yeah. His, his heart was full. His heart was human. His heart connected with people and so forth. So anyway, later on he says, we, oh, we were torn away from you and so forth. And then he says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? So Jesus returns. He lifts us up into his presence Paul is looking at Jesus. We're all looking at our returning Lord at the second coming of Christ, right? So Paul sees in his peripheral vision, his lateral vision, all these people rising from Thessalonica to Christ. And he looks at Christ. He looks over at the Thessalonians and he is rejoicing at the second coming of Christ because a pastor's heart for his people does not end when he gets a call to some other church. It will last forever. At the second coming of Christ, Sam, all the people you've pastored, they will be there. And they will be ready to meet Christ because of your service, your love for them. And that moment between Jesus and you and the people, that three-way relationship will be glorious. Paul is alerting us pastors that we will, these people we're serving, they will always be precious to us yeah. forever. The church is, is not your client as a pastor. And it's so easy to slide into that mentality. Or even, even worse than that is to think the church is there to serve my ministry. 
they're there to give me my platform. They're there to give me, you know, the, the speaking opportunity, you know. I was thinking as well of Philippians 4, Paul says, you, you mentioned about telling a church that you love them. Paul does exactly that to the Philippians. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my, again, joy and crown, um, they, they are in no doubt about where they stand with Paul. And he wants them to know he longs for them. When he's not with them, that, that's, a, that's painful to him. So your church is not your job. Your church is not your employer. In the eyes of the state, in the eyes of the IRS, it might be. But what do they know? We're talking about more glorious realities. And one of the, um, one of the ways God helps us as pastors to give our hearts away at this deep and rich and intense and profound level is he gives us the privilege of suffering. We enter into our own sufferings. We enter into other people's sufferings. We get past ourselves. We're, we, we, we we're forced out of selfish cost-benefit calculations and transactional relationships. And our hearts become wonderfully broken just living in this world and pastoring people who are living in this world. And as that happens, plus we see the future, we see the brokenness of the present, we see the glory of the future. And as we suffer in the present and find our hope in the future and we move all our chips out into the future and we are longing for all of our friends in that church, all these people we care for and are responsible for, that they too would join us in moving all their chips onto the future and the second coming of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth and so forth. All these powerful realities break our hearts and reform and reshape our hearts. This is, suffering is spiritual formation. Pastoral suffering is, suffering is spiritual formation to get us out of ourselves. Yeah. Well, and if, you know, <laughs> the sufferings of Christ were not incidental to his mission, um, we should not expect to have genuine fruitfulness in our ministry if, if we don't suffer at some point along the way. That, that's got to be part of how God works in us and then how he works through us. And the crazy thing is, we all know it's true though, is that the anguish of pastoral ministry, the hardship, the sheer effort of it, sharing in people's sufferings and so forth, bearing the burden of their sins with them, the repercussions of their sin, all of this, this is how we get into the green pastures and the still waters that Without that suffering, we wouldn't have even believed is real. Mm. But God presses us into blessing we have never known before. Richness, fullness, life, community, and radiant credibility that then can go on mission. As through Jesus, we experience community. He leads us into suffering. We start caring as never before. Our hearts are wonderfully broken. Then we have something to share with the world. Um, Second John, verse 12, John says, I have much more to write to you. I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. I'm, I'm struck there that he's got so much to say to these friends of his. He doesn't want to use paper and ink, not because he's... he's you know, tight and doesn't want to spend money on <laughs> pens and things. He says, I hope to come to you and talk face to face 
not because that's more efficient and we can get more done that way and we can make quicker progress through my list of things I need to, to kind of share with you. He says, I, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. It's really striking, isn't it? And then mission is not a to-do list. It's the overflow of reality that's very beautiful. Mm. Well, okay, Sam, thank you. I, I feel the Lord has helped us in this episode to say some things we've really been longing to say. Again, we want to thank every young pastor for joining us. It's such a privilege to serve you. And we want to thank Crossway Books, our friends there, for sponsoring this podcast and making it happen. And I want to commend to everyone the English Standard Version of the Bible, translated by or provided by, published by Crossway Books. Here's the thing about the ESV. The, the, the text of the ESV is the original text of Scripture. It is the Hebrew text. It is the Greek text, brilliantly disguised as English. <laughs> We'd all love to, to be really expert in Hebrew and Greek and the original languages and Aramaic and so forth. And, and wouldn't that be wonderful? Someday maybe we will be. But until then, the ESV, if you are reading attentively the, the text of the ESV, you are in touch with the original text of Scripture. You don't have to somehow get around the translation to really encounter the Bible as it is. And that's, that's one reason why I have so much respect for the ESV published by Crossway, so much confidence in it, and I am profoundly grateful for it. I commend it to, to everyone listening. And Ray, you mentioned reading attentively. I, I'm so thankful to the ESV as well because they've, they've been so creative in helping people read attentively. Ah, interesting. Um, the scripture journals that you can get for individual books of the Bible and you can scribble over the text, write notes alongside it, or I think of the, the reader's Bible with all the kind of clutter taken out of subheadings and chapter numbers and all those sorts of things. You can just pick it up and read it. Um, they, they have really helped us to find fresh ways of engaging with God's Word. It's amazing. It's so impressive. Okay, last thing. You and I, Sam, want to say to every young pastor listening, you're not crazy. Okay, you're out there laying it on the line for the Lord. You are sticking your neck out. You are prayerful. You are conscientious. You are sincere. And Sam and I just want to say to you, the Lord is with you. You are so not God-forsaken. The ministry isn't easy, but it's worth it. And what you're doing matters now, and it will matter forever. You just keep going, you gospel monster. You. <laughs> that's, that's manual talk for you're doing really well. I think we need some gospel monster t-shirts or something. <laughs> Great idea. Thanks, guys. God bless. We're so grateful for you listening to this podcast. Uh, we don't take that for granted. Um, do visit tgc.org slash podcasts for more episodes and information. And we'd love it if you could subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you go for your podcasts. Thank you. The You're Not Crazy podcast was made possible by multiple team members at TGC. 
That team includes the hosts of the show, Ray Ortland and Sam Alberry, as well as Stephen Morales and Andrew LaPara as executive producer and producer. Heather Farrell, our podcast lead. Gabriel Reyes, our graphic designer. And Josh Diaz, our audio engineer. You're Not Crazy is a part of the Gospel Coalition Podcast Network. You can find more podcasts at tgc.org forward slash podcasts.